You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with uh, Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcasts, and I have Dr. Bruce Damer. Uh, he's the CEO and founder of a company called Digital Space, a company that creates virtual worlds for industrial design, engineering, education, and uh, public outreach. Um, he's also with uh, he's also a researcher on the the origins of life, the chemistry of the origins of life, and we may get into that a little bit. Uh, you know, at UC Santa Cruz. So, uh, Bruce, how you doing? Thanks for coming. I'm very good. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I, I actually, I wanted to ask you about the uh, origins of life chemistry work first, because that uh, seems super interesting. And then we can get into digital space. So would you mind uh, telling me a little bit about your work at UC Santa Cruz? Yes. Uh, I've been collaborating with Professor David Deemer, whose last name is almost like mine, uh, for about 10 years. And I'm a computer scientist, complexity theorist, and he's a chemist. And we both tackled this question of how life began on the earth with those two perspectives and came up with a the hot spring hypothesis, which was, you know, came out to the public last year on the cover of Scientific American. So it's it's an actual explanation that's testable about how life began on Earth and how it could have begun on Mars, for example. Hmm. So what is the hypothesis? Where do we think that life uh, began? Well, it goes back to Charles Darwin's idea in 1871 that, that some warm little pond somewhere was where life started. And we've actually updated Darwin's insight to hot little fluctuating pools. Kind of think like a hot spring is like your jacuzzi. It fills up and then dries down and then fills up and dries down. And if you get that kind of cycling, you can make all kinds of biopolymers from scratch in a sort of primordial soup. And and we've done this now in the lab for years, and I did it last uh, year in New Zealand in a hot spring called Hell's Gate, where just mm-hmm. using simple solutions, we're able to create RNA, which is an important polymer of life. So you were able to create RNA, and then uh, did the RNA act in such a way as it, as if it had purpose, or it was part of a life form, or did, what did it do? Did it just sit there? Well, what happens is typically uh, you encapsulate these polymers in little bubbles uh, called protocells. And so you, in your solution, you throw in some of the building blocks of protocells, which are basically like the cell walls of your cells, and they kind of form membranes and they form compartments. And as you synthesize RNA or, or peptides, they get trapped in the compartment. And then the first stage toward life is that, that these polymers, and you're in, your question was very good because the polymers have to have a job. They have to be selected for the polymers stabilize the bubble they're in. And so then they cycle down for next drying period where they get remade or they get extended. 
So that's what we're now seeing experimentally is that we could make polymers, get them inside protocells and get them growing effectively. Okay. So you think this is how life began is that the conditions were such that, you know, some of the precursors of life were created and then they, uh, they came together to form the first life. Yeah. They, they fell from space. It turns out that asteroids are even the little particles that you find in your gutters. When you clean your gutters out in the, uh, in the fall, there's, micrometeorites in there. And those contain actually the building blocks of life. They're, they're packed full of amino acids and, and fatty acids and things. So you, you've got it raining in from the sky for a billion years ago and then cycling in these pools until this process ends up with a dividing cell and then comes out all the way to us. It's like chemistry writing its own software, its own programs, until the programs start being like an operating system. Hmm. Okay. So um, at what, how far would you have to take the testing of this, this theory for people to say, oh, that's, that's how life began? I mean, what's needed to, uh, to take it to its completion? That's a good question. We, we just submitted a paper. Uh, it's called a hypothesis paper that, that, that actually puts that out to the science, scientific field and says, and I wrote a, a paragraph there that said, how are we going to be convinced? And the answer is, we'll never know exactly how life began because we can't go back to those 4 billion years ago. But if, for example, the cycling little populations of protocells that become stable like a bubble bath soap or bubbles, then if you keep cycling them, you see other things emerging like the little polymer that does a makes a pore in the protocell or another one that actually copies information or is a catalyst. And if we, if we cycle our little populations long enough that we see what's called a molecular evolution happening, we won't get to life. That, that's way beyond the reach of science. But we'll get to a really strong suggestion that this is how life can begin. Why, would you, why wouldn't you be able to take it all the way to the point where you create uh, a life form? What do you think would be the barrier? You know, I think the barrier is, is time and the amount of experiments that, that you can do for a graduate student or a postdoc or one lab or even even a hundred labs. It's the earth, uh, which is the, the birthplace of life, we think, uh, had per- perhaps thousands of these pools all in interconnected and cycling through millions of years. So life could start, try, try to get started and then fail, which it probably did, and write the code for all the feedback loops. And I think that the, the complexity of that first dividing cell is such that we couldn't engineer it. We just, we, only evolution could make it. Uh, it's just way beyond uh, even conceptualizing that first dividing cell. So if we, couldn't, uh, if we couldn't make life, but nature could, do you think that nature made it by random mutation and natural selection? Or do you think there's another uh, driving force for creating life from a soup of chemicals? Well, it turns out that you, you've nailed two of them on the head, the random mutation and natural selection. There actually is a third force, and it's called it's something that we, as humanity, have discovered in the last 25 years, which is the network, uh, the Internet. We've discovered how powerful network effects are. You know, if, if one person has a mobile phone that's worth a certain value, if 10 million people have it, uh, it starts to accelerate. The, the value of the platform and the robustness and the power of the platform. And then a billion people have mobile phones or smartphones that can change an entire civilization. So the network effect is what we've discovered 
was probably in play at the beginning of life, that we didn't come from com- competing individuals, like individuals that were just battling it out, duking it out for success. It, they were actually jostled together in something called a progenote, and they were in collaboration. They formed a network. So that network is persistent even beyond generations. And so that's a brand new idea coming out of origin science. And I'm going to be discussing this at the University of Cambridge in a month or so uh, to bring it into evolutionary biology. It's a powerful new idea. Our common ancestor was a community, actually. Interesting. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, And then in regards to uh, the digital space project, which hopefully won't be, uh, well, hopefully it will be just as exciting as the original life. What's, uh, What's that about and what's the premise of the company? That's that's very exciting. Uh, when I was 14 and 15, I decided I was going to work on both the origin of life and then the future of life. And by by which I mean that when I was about that age, I figured humans were just going to consume everything on the planet. We were going to convert it into you know, one big shopping mall, probably. Uh, and there was really nothing that was going to stop it, because that's what, what life does when it can. So life for it to have a future needs to extend the biosphere itself. So not in a Star Trek type of a way, but in an actual creating new worlds kind of a way. And I, for 30 years, I worked on a solution. Then I worked for NASA for 10 years on different contracts. And finally, three of us came up with a solution about four years ago, which is if we want to extend civilization, we actually put a bag around asteroids, those same same objects that uh, maybe have given rise to life. We put a bag around them, put an atmosphere in, and we can extract materials from the asteroids, like water for fuel, or nickel for plating parts in space, or whole biospheres can be made inside the, the balloon, if you will. So that's uh, become the Shepherd Project. And tomorrow we're meeting at the SETI Institute, where it was co-developed, and we're meeting with a young entrepreneur who wants to take it all the way to a, a low Earth orbit CubeSat demonstration and uh, has the energy and connections to do it. So that's that's come up just last week. Hmm. All right. Um, as for the digital space project, though, is that uh, what the whole focus of the project's about, or is it something that is different? Well, what we did for NASA for 10 years is, is a whole series of design simulations, uh, first helping them with training, the design of the space station, figuring out how rovers could climb down crater walls on the moon. And then I got into the design side of it because NASA kept coming and saying, here, help us figure out how you can take humans to the surface of an asteroid. So we did that in 2007. And then the whole project of how do we extend human civilization and sustainable space flight into the solar system came up. And Elon Musk then was in the picture talking about going to Mars, and we realized he's going to need fueling stations. He can't just send one great big mission. I mean, you can't drive a a Tesla across America without a charging station. So then this whole other thing got got picked up, and uh, it's now rolling, which is very, very exciting. Okay. So uh, is digital space, again, more about creating virtual worlds, or is it more going to be about, uh, you know, harvesting minerals from asteroids? I'm not quite sure. We're we're morphing now. So we were about the virtual worlds for, um, you know, initially in the 90s, it was avatars and cyberspace like that. And then it became outer space, virtual worlds or cyberspace for outer space. And now we're really going to be standing up a physical laboratory 
to build, just as we've done in chemistry for origin law, to build prototypes to fly into orbit. So that, that's a maturation of, of our, our whole design principle. Okay, so what's going to be the initial design or the minimum viable product that you're working on that you think will have success? Yeah, so the it's actually, it came up with this last fall, which was, why don't we take a meteorite that's already fallen to Earth from, from Peter Janiskin's collection there at SETI Institute, put it inside an inflatable balloon that's packed in the CubeSat, which goes up on a really low-cost launch on, say, a Falcon 9. And then when it's released into orbit, it, it inflates the CubeSat, releases the asteroid inside or the meteorite inside, and then we use gas, gas jets and lighting and position finders to actually push the little rock into the center and hold it there, spin it and de-spin it and manage it. Because that's how we're going to manage and extract from whole large asteroids. So we can do it with a little rock in space, a lot like the space station astronauts use. They blow on water globules and they spin cubes and things like that just for fun. Well, we'll be doing it in an automated way with little gas jets just to prove that we can we can do this autonomously. Okay, so you, how would you do this with a much larger asteroid, though? How would it translate? It'd be the same thing. You'd you'd literally come up to the asteroid, extend the balloon to halfway open, and then move yourself around the asteroid. And they're typically rotating. Uh, the solar wind gives them some kind of a push to... They're rotating tumblers. That's why it's so tumbling, hard to right? deal with them. They're tumbling. Yeah, they're, they're all tumbling. Uh, so then you get it into the enclosure and you push the end of the balloon and seal it up, kind of like you would do with a rubber band on, on a regular old party balloon. Then you put your, your, your gas in and over just really a day or two, these really large objects, which might be 500 tons, will, will hit the friction of the gas and slow down and stop. And they'll then be stationary, which is really good because you can manage them. Then you blow gusts of wind inside the enclosure with the gas, which will rotate the asteroid like a sailboat into the wind. And then you can continually drive it with air, you know, gusts of air basically to push it. And then you have to, of course, fire your little jets out the back to keep up with it because otherwise it'll just collide with the edge of the balloon. But that's the way we think we can move asteroids. And then by heating the gas inside, we can start extracting that precious water because uh, that's that's what we need. That's the lowest hanging fruit for space flight. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Um, are you getting close to being able to do a test like this? And where would it be? And you know, is it piggybacking on an existing mission? What we would do, and these are good questions. We took the example of the Planetary Society down in Pasadena. They they did a crowdfunding campaign and and, and funded a solar sail mission. And the first one was actually lost. The booster failed. And the second one worked. And basically the craft was a CubeSat, a little square body, a little cubicle body. And it released, uh, it just deployed or unfurled a, a very, very thin, I think it was a mylar sheet with little trusses. And it measured how much of the solar wind it could capture for thrust. Because that's an idea for moving around the solar system. And they did all that. And they built that, you know, with teams. They raised a few million dollars to do that. And uh, that's exactly the kind of thing that, that we're planning to do. And there's able and willing CubeSat design and build teams everywhere. 
we might do it in Luxembourg. They, they have a great space program. The government of Qatar in the Middle East has expressed interest. So it's whoever kind of puts their hand up and provides the financing uh, will will locate the company there and will build this mission and will buy a, a, a launch bay on one of these CubeSats. They just generally, it's on the, it, it's a secondary mission where the, they launch their satellite, but they drop a whole bunch of CubeSats off. It's only a couple hundred thousand dollars to put one of your CubeSats in that rack there. Oh, really? So now there's missions where they get CubeSats on a main frame, literally not a mainframe, but a mainframe and the whole thing gets launched and the CubeSats like spill out of it and move on yeah. and do their missions? Yeah, there's a, there's a planet, planet Labs in San Francisco uh, recently uh, launched a whole bunch of them at once. You could just see them spitting out. Uh, they were actually launched from the, from the space station. And it's it's fun to watch because they're just tiny satellites. And because they're, they're tiny, they're low cost. Um, in these missions, they generally last they last like 21 days or something. If they're in low Earth orbit, they tend to run out of power or they re-enter or something. So it's it's a temporary kind of a thing. But what we think is that that Shepard, this this balloon uh, technology, a friend of mine who works with the Department of Defense a couple of years ago said this is the ideal way to service broken satellites. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you can go and get your asteroids later, but we have very valuable satellites way up in geostationary orbit, that if your vehicle could wrap its balloon around them and use the gas to stop them, because they're tumbling too, because some of them had had failures where they're, they've run out of fuel or something got stuck and they're tumbling, and you could stabilize them, and then you could actually back them down to low Earth orbit where we could launch a crew to go through an airlock into the enclosure with a breathable atmosphere and do the servicing without even using spacesuits. And then the, the shepherd could use its wind power to move the satellite back into where it's supposed to be. So, you know, a multi-billion dollar, you know, spy satellite or whatever they've got that they really want to put back online is, is then serviced. And we could even move space junk out of critical orbits that they need to get out. Uh, so turns out there's a business there. And it's down the road, it'll be a business delivering Elon his, his fuel for Mars, but right away there's all these satellites that need servicing. Well, I just I just actually spoke to the European Space Agency about space junk. So, what what would be the method by which you'd uh, get rid of the space junk? How would that work again? Well, given that we have really good, you know, the, the great thing about space junk, I mean, there's lots of bad things about it, as was depicted in the movie Gravity, you know. Uh, mm. But the good thing about it is we actually know where it is. You know, pretty pretty good handle on it, the, the location of it. So what the shepherd would do is it would match the orbit of the space junk very, very gradually, open its enclosure, it's sort of like a big mouth, and then basically close down on space junk, probably the b big stuff that you really can't manage, maybe an entire disabled satellite or a piece of rocket stage. Uh, those are often quite dangerous. And then it would introduce the gas, stop the tumbling, and start moving the object gently and moving it to a different orbit, say that's, that's safer, that's not geostationary, for example, or moving it down, imparting momentum such that it'll eventually re-enter the Earth's atmosphere and, and be burned up, or moving it to the orbit of the space station, which is tricky because you have to be in the right inclination, but you, know, you could even move it to that orbit and they could pick it up and just 
if, if they were interested in having it. Uh, but it, it, it's just a matter of, it's a slow process. It's almost like a barge or a tug. It has to move, move slowly. And, you know, if you had a crippled ship, you know, you go out to it with a great big powerful barge and you gradually change it where it's going because it may be drifting. And you have to do these things slowly and carefully. Same thing with space junk. Okay, I gotcha. Why would you have to do it slowly and carefully, by the way? Like what's, you know, if you try to do it quickly, what would happen? Is there just not enough energy or what's the reason? Yeah, there's, there, you hit the nail on the head. There's really not enough energy. Uh, you're, you're only using solar power and uh, electro, basically it's called solar electric propulsion, which is a slow, gradual thrust. Because if you, if, if you wanted to do something quickly, you'd have to burn up a lot of propellant and have a bigger, heavier vehicle. So hmm. you use something that's, that's light and small and uses, say, xenon gas and gradually thrusts it out. And you, it takes you, you know, months to years to match the orbit and to get into the right position. Then the capture and then the gradual uh, repositioning. So if, say, for instance, you had an asteroid where it was going to threaten the Earth, say, in 2038. Well, you could send a great big mission out there that would try to blow it up, but then you'd just end up with a gunshot. You know, if pellets coming your way, it's sort of a bad idea. So with Shepard, you'd go out there and for 10 years encapsulate and gradually shift the orbit very gently. You don't want to break the object up. And you shift it just enough that it maybe skips the top of the atmosphere or, or doesn't touch Earth's atmosphere at all and just keeps going. Because all you need to do is make a small change. It's no longer a hazard. Okay, I see what you mean. Just like when they talk about intercepting uh, asteroids hitting the Earth, the further out they can intercept them, the less they have to divert them, the less energy and the easier it is. If you can change them, let's say, you know, one degree in their path, if they're, you know, however many miles away, that's enough to, uh, so that they'll miss the earth, for instance. Yeah. And, and so they don't have to do, wait to the last minute and do the Bruce Willis thing and have a guy trying to jackhammer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not smart, you know, this yeah. is all, you're exactly right. The, the further, the earlier you start, the easier it is. Okay, interesting. With the uh, the CubeSats capturing, um, you know, the stuff that would come off of asteroids, have you been able to test it on Earth in different conditions to see that, you know, such a, uh, a mission would, would work? What we did for our initial NASA proposal, we did a whole design and even had a model shop ready to do a vacuum chamber test on Earth of, to see if we could, you know, put something in the balloon fill it and seal it. And that's a challenge. It's a technical challenge to get a good seal. You know, if you have a rubber band around the end of a balloon, you generally get a good seal. But in the latex balloons, over time, they lose their, their gas because it just goes through the latex. Mylar balloons can last a lot longer, but still, you're, you're losing gas. So how do you, you, you get a seal? Uh, so that was all put in our NASA proposal four years ago. But uh, NASA rated our proposal good, but did not fund us. So what I did was said to the team, I'm going to give it away in a TEDx talk. And you can actually see the, the TEDx talk at damer.com, D-A-M-E-R.com, where I talk about the origin of life and also Shepard, the spacecraft, so that we could publish the intellectual property so no one else could patent it and say control it. So we wanted to give it to humanity. And it turns out that Elon Musk does the same thing. He kind of gives away the patents. He, he wants it to be developed. He wants competitors, actually. So you can you can all see that. So we actually invite anyone to try to do 
the engineering on this. We're we're probably going to finance this in the next year, but it'd be great to have a couple of teams. Okay, very interesting. Um, again, is there any way of approximating this, you know, on Earth, maybe like in a, a you know during a zero G flight, or I mean, any thoughts there? Yeah, that would work. Uh, that would actually work, and actually talk to somebody that does zero G testing, and we we'd get a little bit of data, so we would inflate the you know it'd just be alongside every other zero g experiment the system would just be floating there it would inflate itself turn on its gas vectors and uh, have its little rock floating to see okay did it inflate properly and did it did it track its little rock for a minute uh, what did it look like inside we ought to do that a Hmm. few times before we do that in space you know we could just go for the straight mission but you're absolutely right we really ought to do Zero G test. Yeah, hmm. and why have to surround an object with the balloon at all? Why wouldn't that be? Why wouldn't you be able to harvest things off of the uh, the rock without having a balloon? The problem is that it's virtually no gravity. So um, all these these missions mm. that you see are at asteroids now. There's two Hayabusa and Osiris Rex, and they have to be very careful because they they have to touch and make a sample and then leave. But if you tried to wrap a cable or bolt a building onto an asteroid, stuff will just come everywhere and float off into space and then become a hazard. So you actually mm. can't really touch the objects, but you can use gas to gently manage them and harvest from them in a in a gas extraction. But trying to grind stuff up and can't put conveyor belts on there, you can't do traditional mining on an asteroid. Okay, I understand. Um with an asteroid tumbling, I mean, it seems like it'd be really hard to get a balloon around the whole thing. What about a balloon around just a part of it? You know, uh, you, well, you prob- land on the asteroid, stretch a balloon over a five-foot section, and then, uh, you know, yeah. process that section. The, the challenge would be to get a seal. So mm. you, you, couldn't, you couldn't seal with the surface itself because it's just rubble and, you know, loosely consolidated pebbles and things like that. So it actually turns out to be simpler to go out and just envelop the whole thing uh, because then it actually doesn't matter what shape it is, what composition it is. If you've got enough diameter, say the twice the diameter, uh, you just put it around it, it will slow and stop it with the gas. Um, you know, there's challenges. Uh, pebbles will fly off. Dust will fly off the surface as soon as the atmosphere is there. So it'll get all turbid inside. But possibly you might just open the enclosure and let all the junk go out, vacuum it out, and then re-enclose. You know, this all has to be tested. Well, if an asteroid has no atmosphere, why would it have, or how would it have any loose material on it? Um, I mean, wouldn't all that fly too. off? Wouldn't, you know. what, what happens in space is these things accumulate stuff over time. So some of them are 4 billion years old or, or older. So any little piece of boulder that comes along will gradually fall and attach itself to the surface and even small grains. So if you look at the pictures of the asteroids from the two missions, they're just covered with boulders and rocks of all sizes that have glued themselves on there, some of them quite loosely. So I guess because of the tumbling and because of the, gra- you know, the, the I guess, very small amount of gravity maybe <clears throat> that the asteroid has, that's enough to keep loose elements on its surface? Yeah, yeah. And they tend to get sintered to the surface by solar wind too, and over time become more consolidated. But some of these things are just rubble piles and others have melted at some point in their history. So they're more solid. Some of them are like series. It's, it's really large and contains more water than earth. 
than Earth's oceans. Hmm. That's really odd. Yeah, that's, I mean, I guess it's you know it's outer space, so the rules are different, or things happen very differently. Yeah. It's just very strange. You know? hmm. Yeah, and this is we're in the golden era of era of asteroid exploration, and I was just in Japan at a meeting with the Hayabusa team uh, in in Japan, and they showed us this amazing sequence of they dropped a disco ball. This kind of reflective disco ball off of the spacecraft and it floated down to the surface of the asteroid and landed there. And then they used the disco ball to, for it to automatically navigate itself close down to the surface and then took itself back up. And it got a standing ovation because it was, wow, that was impressive. The, the, the satellite actually dropped the, the target, navigated almost to the surface and then navigated itself back safely from just reflecting off the disco ball. Hmm. Interesting. So what would be some of the first candidate asteroids that you'd want to go after? Like, where are they and how big are they? Any particulars about them? Well, beyond satellite repair, we'd go and look for ones where we know where they are. So there's a, a Lagrange points or so-called Trojan objects. Uh, and these are asteroids that are trapped in kind of gravity wells between the Earth and the moon or in the Earth's orbit. And you can go out and find out, oh, there's one there, then it's 30 feet across. And we know exactly where it is, and it's not a lot of energy to get there. And we'd probably go for one of those, bring it back to Earth orbit, and then pick it up with a crew so that they could take it down. And we get a pristine asteroid that didn't get altered by the Earth's atmosphere. And science really could use use take a look at that too. Yeah, hmm. interesting. So, you, so, so the 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 stuff that's caught in these gravity wells, like you said, the Lagrange points. Is there there's plenty of debris there? There's plenty of asteroids that have been observed? There's there's quite a few that have been targeted. There have been a lot of work in the last 10 years with these sky surveys to, to figure out if there's dangerous ones out there, big ones. Um, so but there's there's billions of them. I mean, they're just immense numbers. But uh, there isn't a hmm. day that goes by that some new one's not tracked and named. Interesting. Okay. I didn't realize that. And those are the easy, most easily accessible asteroids that we can find? Yeah, the ones that are kind of orbiting along with the Earth. It's kind of like a, a rubber ducky uh, that's orbiting just alongside your cruise ship. I mean, that would be the easiest thing to go get uh, rather than something that's, you know, in a really different orbit around the sun that require a lot of time and energy to get to. The ones that we, we will eventually go for are between the or orbit of Mars and, and Jupiter in the so-called snow, uh, snow line where it's cold enough that water ice is, remains frozen uh, in these objects. Because the ones that are further in, it's all boiled off. And in fact, when we go through, uh, when comets go by, they're, they're really cold objects that are mostly water ice that, are, that blow off a huge tail uh, because they're in the inner solar system and they're just boiling, you know, and then they go back out to their very distant orbits. Very interesting. What, uh, any insight into what we think we're gonna find in the various asteroids we're, you're going to be looking at, you know, the ones on the Lagrange points and the ones, like you said, in the in the frozen zone? The Lagrange points will be mostly sort of rocky things. If we find something that's what's known as a carbonaceous asteroid, it's one of the early ones made of the building blocks of life. And those will be really interesting. Further out, we'll get things with more water ice. Uh, if we're lucky, we'll find ones that are great big metal mountains. Uh, because some of the asteroids that fall onto Earth as meteorites are nickel and iron together. And we, if we find one of those, we can actually introduce a gas that will extract the nickel and the iron and plate it mm. or electroform it and make, make huge parts. 
So that Stanley Kubrick space station that everybody dreams about that you couldn't do by launching the parts, those big trusses and beams and things could be made in space with electroforming, gas electroforming. So in a way, the Shepard idea solves all the major problems of building a civilization in space because we can even make parts. We can grow food in liquid globules that are biospheres that we melt the asteroid into a one of those glass globe type globules. Huh. Okay. Well, very interesting. And the amount of material that are in asteroids, uh, from what I've heard, like vastly surpasses all the resources we have on Earth, right? Yeah. So in truth, if you found an extraterrestrial civilization that was making megastructures, you know, like they <clears throat> they talk about techno signatures now. Like, did we see a big megastructure like a shell around a star capturing all its energy? Well, those megastructures would have been built by from asteroids, obviously, not the home planet. And they probably would have been built with some kind of gas envelope around the asteroid to do all the, the work. So I think ETs would have discovered this uh, to, to extend their civilization. And the three of us, Peter Janiskins, Julian Knott, and myself, may have come up with a sort of an ET-type technology on our own. Um, maybe they'll invite us into the Federation, finally. Yeah. That's funny. Well, very good. Um, you know, we're just about out of time. The stuff you're working on is uh, obviously like unbelievably ambitious, but very cool if it can work. So what's the best way for folks to get in touch and to learn more? Uh, probably go to damer.com, D-A-M-E-R.com, and you, there's a contact form. There's a whole bunch of videos. There's tons of stuff on YouTube on this. So if you just Google Bruce Damer, you know, in video or images, you'll find tons. We have a lot of scientific publications spending what they're interested in, and it's just scattered all over cyberspace. And I have a podcast called The Levity Zone, levityzone.org, which has got almost 70 episodes of this kind of stuff mm. and more. Stuff about health and healing, too, because I know that's one of your themes. Yes. Okay. Well, very good. Well, I appreciate you coming. And uh, like you said, it's been, it's been really interesting. So thank you. You're welcome. And I hope to see some, peop- some of the listeners at TransTech next year, if you guys are out there. Oh, yeah. If you don't mind for a minute, what's uh, TransTech about? When is it? Where is it? Et cetera. TransTech is an amazing conference. Uh, it's in Palo Alto, California. It's usually in, in October, November, and it's transformative technology. So it's brainwave, uh, neural stim, visual interfaces uh, to allow people to relax, meditate, regulate their body systems, heart sync, breath monitoring. It's all like the the future of, of wellness, uh, way beyond Fitbit. And so all the companies are there, the universities are there. It's like, how can we leave, lead less stressful, more productive, you know, higher mental capacity, better healthy lives using technology rather than having us just constantly drain us of energy, which, you know, as, as we all know, it tends to do. So it's, it's a wonderful conference by Nicole Bradford and, and, uh, and Jeffrey Martin, uh, and, it, it was booming. It was like 800 people at last year's. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, very good. Well, again, thank you, and uh, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. You're most welcome. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now. 
and the companies that are using these technologies for the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.